All right, good morning. How are we doing today? Good. It is good. Thank you. Uh, to see all of you. This is good right here. I don't want to get blinded by the projector. Um, it's good to see you guys. I, it is exciting for me to have the opportunity to preach again right now because uh, if you've been with us over the summer, you know we have had a lot of different people that preach. Um, we see it as a great opportunity to give people opportunities to think they might be uh, interested in pursuing pastoral ministry, so I love getting to train those people up and, and give them an opportunity, but uh, I also love getting to have the opportunity to get into God's Word with you guys, so um, if you're hoping to hear somebody else, sorry, you're stuck with me today. <laughs> um, and so I was thinking, it's like, okay, over the summer, you know, we don't have like a specific series that we do kind of the way we do in the school year, because there's so many different people preaching, and uh, so it was kind of like, okay, I'm preaching this one Sunday, you can do whatever topic you want. And I'm thinking, like, okay, that's really hard considering that I have the whole Bible to choose from. Um, and so I got this idea. I'm like, well, you know, what if I preach through the book of Joel? Okay. Now, does that, how many of you guys know that the book of Joel even exists in the Bible? Okay, so like maybe half of the people even knew that that was the book of the Bible. Okay. And so those of you that know Joel as the book of the Bible, how many of you actually have any idea what that book is about? Okay, great. Maybe like two or three people. Okay, that's why I wanted to preach on it, because I figured, hey, you're going to learn something this morning, no matter what. So um, this is an ambitious task, because I actually want to preach through the entire book this morning. It's only three chapters long. It's like 73 verses total or whatever. So don't worry, we're not going to be here till six o'clock. Um, I should get you out of here about the normal time that we usually do. Uh, but yeah, at, at the very least, we're actually going to read through the entire book together, uh, incrementally, and preach through it. So at the very least, even if my sermon is terrible, uh, something valuable was accomplished in that you'll have read an entire book of the Bible this morning. Um, yeah, right? And uh, that, that was actually one of the things that the Apostle Paul told Timothy to uh, pay great attention to, was the public reading of Scripture. So we're accomplishing that this morning as well. Um, but before we dive into the text, it's always helpful whenever you're going to study a book of the Bible to get a little bit of context of what's going on at that time. So uh, with Joel, that's actually somewhat difficult for us because we really don't know that much about him. He's not mentioned very often in the Bible. Matter of fact, uh, Peter quotes him in his sermon on Pentecost, but he doesn't pop up in any of the historical books that we have. He's very rarely quoted, so we don't have a lot of clues about when exactly his ministry was. Biblical scholars have about a 700-year range that that they debate uh, the time was that he preached, but most likely uh, Joel was a prophet. I think from from what my research is that he probably uh, ministered during the divided kingdom, but before Israel and Judah went into exile, but can't be 100% sure. Now, the reason it's helpful for us to get a little bit of context, or at least to know some of what's going on, especially before we get into the prophets, is because um, the nature of what prophets do. Okay, so when, when you hear the word prophet, uh, you might, how many of you guys think of like a fortune teller, like somebody that is kind of supposed to tell you distant events in the future, maybe something almost like a palm reader or someone looks into? Okay, for the most part, that's not what prophets do, okay? Prophets were people that would pronounce future happenings, uh, but by and large, the, the main purpose of the prophets was actually to call people back to God's law. So the, the things that they would say were, were generally not very original. Uh, they would actually call people back to things that God already said were going to happen, and, and if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, he said, hey, Israel, I'm bringing you into this land. If you're faithful, these blessings will come upon you. 
if you're not faithful, these curses will come upon you. And so oftentimes God would raise up a prophet in the time that Israel was, was being sinful and that they needed to repent. And the prophet would come along and they'd say, hey, if you guys don't repent and you don't start following the Lord, remember these curses they say he's going to bring upon you. These things are going to happen. But if you actually are faithful in following him, you repent of your sin, then hey, all these good things are going to happen. And look, the type of things they're talking about are the same kind of things that we can go back to the end of Deuteronomy and see that God talked about that. So more than a fortune teller, primarily prophets are really almost uh, what you would say is covenant enforcers. They're kind of like sheriffs to some degree. They're, They're calling people back to obeying the law that God had given them. Um, Now, with that being said, there is an aspect of uh, telling events of the distant future. And that's what can make uh, interpreting the prophets difficult sometimes. Because it's not always entirely clear, is the event that they're talking about going to be fulfilled right now in the near future? Or is it going to be fulfilled sometime in the distant future? And a lot of the time within the prophets, we actually see a mix of both. And that's what we're going to get with Joel this morning. Um, But the important thing for us to know, even though we don't know exactly what King Joel ministered under, we don't know exactly uh, the the years or anything like that, what we do know is that he was still uh, functioning as that covenant enforcer that I was talking about. So he is basically functioning in a role where he's saying, hey, Israel, you guys have a special relationship with God. He has called you out to be a people for himself. He's identified himself with you guys. He's promised that he would give you special blessing. But you are supposed to live in this certain way, in accordance with the law that he's given you. And you're not doing that. And so I want to tell you, hey, this is, this is how you need to turn back to that, okay? So regardless of the time period, that theme is going to be an important thing for us to understand in Joel, is that Joel is a prophet of the Lord trying to call uh, the people of Israel, probably actually the people of Judah, back to God. Um, now, with that being said, uh, one final note before we jump into this text here. Uh, well, actually, two final notes I want to give you before we jump into the text. First off, I, when you read the prophets, I want you to, there, there's a lot of time they can be kind of depressing because there's a lot of bad stuff that they talk about that's going to happen. But I would hope that when you read prophets, you would see them as uh, a sign of God's mercy. How many of you guys got uh, spanked as, as children? Okay. Okay, okay, my parents are here. You guys spanked me as a kid, right? Not, not too often, but uh, if they did spank me as a kid, it was always, it was, I'm sure it was always for good reason. Um, and if it happened, they, they would never just get angry all of a sudden and go spank me immediately, right? Um, they, they would tell me what I was doing wrong, and they would warn me, Grant, if you don't stop doing this, this is what's going to come. And I had a choice I could make. I could either heed that warning, or I could be subject to their wrath, Okay. Um, and, 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 and so in many ways, that, that warning that they're giving me, Grant, you need to stop this or you know what's coming, that's an act of mercy, right? Because it, they're, they're justified to be able to just go straight to the punishment, but they don't really want to punish. Parents, parents don't enjoy spanking their kids. They don't enjoy punishing them. But they do it because they know that it's what's necessary for the actual good of the child long term. And so in the same way, when God is, is disciplining Israel, And also for us as as Christians, when he disciplines us, it's not that God is is taking joy and pouring out wrath upon people or or, uh, bringing about destruction or difficulty or anything like that. But he's using this as an instrument to help us grow in holiness, just like my parents would use spankings to help me grow into a better man. And so the, the, the prophets really, when they come, it's an act of mercy. God's saying, hey, I don't want to have to bring these plagues or these armies or whatever else is upon you. But if you don't repent, if you don't come back, then this is what's going to have to happen. Okay? Um, and then the last thing I wanted to tell you before we get into the text is that you might be sitting here wondering, okay, 
why did I come to church this morning? We're going to sit here and read a book that is a couple thousand years old. And is, what, what do I have in common with ancient Israel? I mean, like these people, whatever, you just talked about them having some sort of special relationship with God. What, is, what does that relate to me? How is this book relevant to my life in any way? It's a good question. There's two reasons why it's relevant. First off, uh, we learn a lot about God when we learn stories about him, right? Like what's one of the main ways that you learn about people? by hearing stories about them, by, by interacting with them on different levels. And so a lot of the things that, the, the way that God interacts with Israel, we can learn a lot about who he is and how he's also going to interact with us. The themes that we see throughout the book of Joel, themes like judgment, forgiveness, repentance, restoration, these are very relevant themes in our lives still today. And so there's a lot we're going to be able to draw to the text from that. Also, uh, the other reason why this is very important is because it teaches us, man, okay, what is it that God desires in his worshipers? You know, how is it that we can be people that faithfully worship the Lord? And how is it that we can return to him when we mess up? And then finally, um, the, although uh, prophets generally had a message that was timely and, and that it was meant for the people of their own time, as I said, a lot of time there's interspersed in there stuff that is yet to be fulfilled, things that talk of the distant future. And Joel actually has a decent amount of that. Uh, if we look at the book of Joel, a lot of his prophecy is actually concerning end times. And so some of that were living in this period between when Joel said, hey, this is coming, but the prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so that leaves us at an interesting spot of like, okay, how, how do we live in the midst of that? And how does this, this prophecy that God gave to his people Israel, how does that relate to us today? right? Because we know that we have also now become the people of God, right? If you read in Romans, it talks about how we've been grafted in amongst his people, that God has made a new covenant with us. So now, not only is Israel the people of God, but the church has become the people of God. And so when we look at these promises that God has that are yet in the distant future to be fulfilled, these promises of great prosperity, restoration, that kind of thing, we have to wonder, do those kinds of promises apply to us as well as the church since we've now been grafted into the people of God? And I'll answer that question as we go on. Um, but, all right, you guys ready? You excited for the book of Joel now? I hope so. Okay, cool. Let, pray with me and then we'll jump in. Um, God, we love you a lot. And we just thank you so much for who you are. Um, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are timeless, uh, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and God, we do thank you that you've given us a new covenant with you that's been instituted through grace. Um, through the blood of your son, Jesus, God, we thank you for bringing us into the fold of your people, uh, for making us your children. God, I pray that as we uh, just read a word that you gave to the prophet Joel many, many years ago, uh, that we would be able to see more about you, God, that we'd be able to learn more about ourselves, that we would be able to uh, learn how to better interact with you, God. Um, teach us this morning. I pray your spirit would be with us, and that your name would be glorified. We love you, God, and we lift us up in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so let's go. Joel chapter 1. The verses will be up on the screen, uh, or you can read it in your own Bibles if you like. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. 
For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before your eyes, gladness and joy from the house of God? The seeds shrivel under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Okay, so that's Joel chapter 1. As you can see, things are pretty bad. Uh, in the place where, where Joel is, is uh, ministering. Um, and he pictures there's a giant swarm of locusts that has come through and devoured every bit of ve- vegetation that's in sight. Um, I assume that no one here has probably ever had an interaction with a swarm of locusts. Okay, probably not. Um, they, they still do happen every now and then. Uh, not here in the United States. They generally happen in Africa. Um, but anyway, there was a, a swarm of locusts. And so as I was preparing this uh, sermon, I did a little bit of research on locusts. And they're really fascinating to learn about. They're insects that are usually solitary. They, they like to kind of keep to themselves. But under the right conditions, um, they change dramatically. Their behavior just does like a 180. And they form these giant swarms. Okay, When I talk about giant swarms, I mean giant. Uh, the swarms can cover literally hundreds of square miles, like a swarm of locusts is covering hundreds of square miles. And within each square mile, there can be up to 200 million locusts, okay? I mean, you, you can't imagine. Literally, like, as I was reading about uh, one guy's experience when he was there when a swarm of locusts came through, he said literally it, it was the middle of the day, and these locusts came by, and the sun was blacked out because of how many bugs there were that were coming by. And, and they have a voracious appetite when they're in this swarm phase as well. So they come through and they literally eat everything that is in sight. And so as you were reading there um, in our passage, we saw the land had been completely destroyed. There are no more crops. The locusts ate them all, okay? Uh, we, we see how this affected every area of the economy. This is a bona fide natural disaster, like a very legitimate problem uh, that, that was brought upon the people. 
Um, and, and we see how it affects everybody. We see there was no grain for the priests to make their grain offerings, so the religious system was hindered. Uh, we see the farmers had their crops destroyed, uh, so they couldn't eat, they couldn't make any money anymore. Um, all the grass of the field had been eaten, so even the, the animals were starving to death. It talks about how the beasts were groaning. There's nothing for them to feed on anymore. And I love how he even points out that the drunkards couldn't drink anymore, <laughs> okay? You know there's a serious problem when you can't get a glass of wine or beer anywhere in the country. Um, so, so that's how bad uh, things have gotten here in Israel. And if that picture isn't bleak enough, uh, look at verse 15, because there's a foreshadowing kind of that something even worse is coming. In verse 15, he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So even though everything has already seemingly been destroyed, and it seems like things are about as bad as they can be after this swarm of locusts, he says, hey, there's something yet that's, that's still coming. Okay, alas, the day of the Lord is near. It's not here yet, it's near. And what's that going to be like? It will come as destruction from the Almighty. If you think destruction from locusts is bad, wait until you experience the destruction of the Almighty. Okay, Um, so we have a serious problem that's on our hands here. Let's uh, continue reading uh, to to see what's going to happen. Chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle, before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in this path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes and the heavens tremble. And the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Okay, so this coming destruction is, is pictured where it's like, okay, you guys think the locusts are bad. Here's a, a better picture of what is, is actually yet to come. And it, it, we get a picture that's planted that's so bad. It's like, who can endure it? Who, who, who can endure this day of the Lord that, that's coming? That God is going to judge the earth. And who's going to stand? You can't fight against the kind of army that was just uh, described there. You're not going to be victorious. And so in light of what was coming, I think that the locusts were a wake-up call, okay? Uh, sometimes God brings us things that are bad and painful in our lives as a form of discipline, um, but they're meant to wake us up to be like, hey, you need to get ready or else something even worse is going to be coming down the road. Um, and that's one of the things that I think we see going on here. Have you guys ever had an idol torn down in your life before? Maybe something that was, was too important to you? and you lost it, 
And it's like, man, that, that was a very painful experience. But, but maybe now you've had the hindsight to realize, I'm really thankful that, that, that I actually suffered that loss. You know why? Because there was something that was even worse that was going to come if I continued heading down that path. Okay? Maybe there was a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend um, that didn't end well. But that relationship was your world, and it was painful for it to break. But in it, you realized that you've been prioritizing that person above the Lord. You know, maybe uh, it was having a perfect GPA, and, and that got crushed by organic chemistry or whatever. Um, you know, there's, this is your <laughs> idol in your life, is, is uh, that you have to be perfect. You have to be the most successful person. Be, and, and the Lord starts to tear that away from you. And although it might be painful, he's growing you in the process. Maybe this was your athletic career when you got an injury that ended up ending your ability to play that game and all of your identity was wrapped up in that. It could be a bunch of different things, but I believe that God loves us enough to bring pain into our lives sometimes to wake us up for things that may come with greater destruction down the road. The the Bible makes it clear that God does discipline his people out of his love for them the same way that good parents discipline their children. If you look at Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And we see that again in Hebrews 12. It's quoted and he goes on to a little bit more. Um, So, I don't know. I I think that maybe the locusts, as bad as they were, were a wake-up call and saying, hey, you guys need to get ready. Like, the the Lord is going to judge the earth at some point. The the, the great and terrible day of the Lord is, is coming. And man, if you guys are found in your sins at that time, you're, it's going to be much worse than the locusts that are devastating the field. And so when pain comes into our lives, I'm not saying that this is always God disciplining us, okay? I'm, by no means am I saying that. Sometimes I think that painful things happen just because it's the result of living in a sin-cursed world, okay? Um, there, there's nothing to make us think that every single time something bad happens to you that the Lord is trying to communicate a message through that. But there are times that he does, okay? And so what I would recommend is, man, man, when you go through a painful experience, when something bad starts to happen in your life, just take a step back and examine, okay? How am I doing with the Lord? Like, is God trying to communicate something to me here? And remember, there's kind of a difference between uh, punishment and discipline, okay? Uh, With with discipline, yes, it's inflicting pain upon somebody, but it's with the goal of their good, okay? Okay? Uh, rather than like a, a punishment that might just be like, this is the end of it, I'm just going to punish you because I'm mad at you kind of thing. All right, so when God brings pain upon the lives of his people, uh, re- remember that, that your sins have been paid for by Jesus on the cross. So, so I don't think that God is making us uh, pay for our sins in the flesh necessarily, but he's helping us to see like, man, you've been called to holiness, and I'm going to use this in your life to help bring you more in that direction. Um. So as, as the Lord is uh, disciplining his people with these locusts, he's telling them what's yet to come. Let's see what else he has to say to them and what the appropriate response is that we can have when the Lord disciplines us. Picking back up. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. 
Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? So we see Joel is calling nationwide. Everybody, we need to come to repentance. Now, we don't see exactly what it is uh, that, that Israel was doing here because, like I said, we, we don't know when Joel proph- prophesied. We don't know what king he was under. We don't have a lot of detail about maybe uh, what the sin was that was going on in Israel, but we can tell from what was going on here um, that this was a wide-ranging problem, okay? Uh, and that he's saying, man, everybody needs to come out before the Lord and repent from uh, the priests to the brides and the bridegrooms and everybody, the children, the parents, call them out. Let us have a, a solemn assembly. Let us weep. Let us mourn. Let us fast. Let us come before the Lord and repent of the sins that we've committed. And what I would say is, is the appropriate response to God's discipline is to run to him rather than to run from him. Okay, sometimes uh, we can be scared when something bad starts to happen in our lives. Sometimes we get angry at God. Sometimes it's like, okay, I want to start to move away. I'm going to go try and find out how to do something on my own. But, but we fail to see that, man, what if this is God actually trying to pull us closer to him? Man, what, what if, what if the, the right response is actually for us to run to him? Okay, the, the Israelites, might have, it might have been easy for them to think, man, look at what God has done. He's brought this, this plague upon us. He's done with us. Like, we best just try and figure out how to do it ourselves. But no, what does the Lord say? He says, even now, even now, yet even now, return to me with all your heart. That is not too late. Wherever you are in your life, I, I don't know everybody's story in here. I know, I know sometimes people feel like they're too far from the Lord. It's like, well, it, I, I'm, I'm done at this point. There's no way God can forgive me. So I may as well just keep going this path. And God says, no, even now, repent, come, turn to the Lord. You're not too far gone, <laughs> okay? And that's the call uh, that, that God makes to sinners is yet even now return to me with all of your heart. And when God wakes us up to the sin that we commit and he calls us to return to him yet even now, um, he calls us to do so not half-heartedly, but with a, a, a true and genuine repentance over our sin. Okay, I love this, uh, what it says in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, rend is not really a word that we use very often. Um, some of you that are reading NLT or something probably have it a little easier. Rend just means tear, okay? So, so uh, you could easily read this verse actually saying, tear your hearts and not your clothing, okay? Uh, it was a common practice in this culture that when something terrible would happen, people would tear their clothes, Okay, uh, King David did this when he learned that Saul and Jonathan had been killed. Um, we see Reuben did this when they put Joseph in that pit and he came back to find him and he confronted him. Whatever, you see it time and time again throughout the scriptures when terrible things would happen, people would tear their clothes as a sign of anguish and sorrow. And so there's kind of this outward expression that we can have sometimes when we repent. Of like, oh, I, I, you know, let me put on a show. I'm going to cry or I'm going to go to do some confession or whatever else like that. Um, but if our heart's not in it, it's worthless. It's just a tearing of the clothes. And, and, and the tearing of the clothes isn't necessarily bad. But what God says, is, you know what I really care about other than the tearing of the clothes? The tearing of your heart. Like, is your heart ripped open by the sin that you've committed? Do you feel sorrow over the sin that you've committed? Are you sorry for it? Do you actually want to repent of this? And so rather than just tearing your clothes, you look and you say, God, yes, like, 
This is something that I'm bothered by. And, and with that comes a resolve to, to live differently, to change. There should be a behavioral change that happens. I'm not going to say that you're going to live perfect from that point on, but the, a heartfelt repentance should actually yield in, in a difference in your life rather than just going back and doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah, that's just like God saying, man, I, I want your genuine hearts. I want your true repentance rather than your show. And so, as Joel reminds the nation about the character of God, he calls them to repent of their unfaithfulness. And the, notice why he calls them to repent. He says, hey, remember, God's compassionate. He's gracious. Like, we serve a God that wants to forgive. Isn't that good? Like, a lot of us, we don't really like to forgive, do we? Like, maybe some, some of us do, some of us don't. I know some, maybe some people struggle with that more than others, but there's something in us that's sinful sometimes that wants to, like, make people pay for their sin and, and, and make them regret the things that they've done to us. We serve a God that longs to forgive, that wants to forgive. He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's called us to repent. And so we know that not only uh, should we go and repent and, and, and be sorrowful over what we've done, but that God's response will be favorable. And praise the Lord for that. And, and we're going to read a little bit more about that now, see how God responds um, to the repentance of his people. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army from, far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will rise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt, dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. And as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So God responds to his people's call to repentance. You see, although he once sent destruction, he says, upon repentance, I'll bring restoration. Look at what he promises to restore. He promises to restore the land. He says that they'd be full of new grain, wine, fruit, and oil. He promises the restoration of safety. 
says this northern army is, is coming, it's going to be removed from you. I'm going to throw it into the sea. He promises the restoration of their honor. He says that they will never again be a reproach among the nations and that they'll never be put to shame. He, promised, he even promises not only restoration, but an improvement of his relationship with them, right? Because we see he says, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, okay? That, that was always the case. But look at what he says. He says that he'll pour out his spirit upon them. We're seeing a level of interaction that God starts to promise that, that we really haven't even seen before. He talks about, hey, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And this is the verse that Peter quotes at Pentecost, by the way, in Acts chapter 2. He says, uh, when everyone's confused about what's going on, he's like, hey, this is what God was talking about. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon the people, and, and your young men will uh, see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And, and so what we see is, is that God, n- not only is he restoring his people in so many ways, but he's actually even increasing his level of intimacy. And he promises that one day he's going to pour out his spirit. And as Christians now, we actually get the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God gets to dwell within us. Man, that, that's, that's crazy, okay? I, I, I think we take the goodness of God for granted sometimes. Like, we know these things a lot, and it's just like, oh, yeah, like God just does all this kind of stuff. But we, we don't think about, like, man, how crazy is it that the Lord has called us so deeply into an intimate relationship with himself, despite the fact that we're guilty of sin. And so... Um, after speaking of this great promised restoration, like I said, sometimes the timelines of things can be confusing in the prophets, okay? Um, <clears throat> whether or not uh, this prosperity has come yet is, is kind of hard to, to say, right? Like, uh, I think that we're getting a little bit of things that are mixed in with stuff that's already happened. Like, for example, God's Spirit being poured out at, at Pentecost and the indwelling of the Spirit in believers now. Um, but at the same time, like, the, the very great level of prosperity that he talks about bringing Israel to, I'm not sure that's quite been fulfilled yet. Okay, we're going to get into more of that in, in chapter 3. But one thing that I do see he talks about is he, he transitions into this great and awesome kind of terrible imagery about the day of the Lord, right? This imagery concerning it, it, it speaks of blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun being turned into darkness, and the moon being turned to blood. This is a description of the day of judgment that's coming. And so on this day, everybody is going to be judged for their deeds. And that is not good news for those of us that are sinners, right? Um, Because what does that mean? Like if God is a just God that promises that he's going to punish sin, then that means that we're going to be guilty, that we're going to have to be judged for that. But what's the promise that he also puts in there? That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. So, so what is it that delivers us? What is it that's able to save us in this day of judgment when, when the moon is turned to blood and the sun is darkened out and there's the smoke and all this kind of stuff? What is it that saves us? Calling upon the name of the Lord. The one who calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. So what does it mean to call upon his name? This is key. Um, the, the name of the Lord that we need to call upon is Jesus. Okay, this becomes clear to us as scripture continues to unfold. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said that in John 14, 6. And in this passage in John 14, Jesus is explaining how essentially if you know him, you know the Father. That he and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he's explaining to his disciples. And so when it talks about calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, we need to call upon the name of Jesus who is the Lord. Peter says this in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Those who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved in this great and terrible day of judgment. And you know why? 
because our just God punishes all sin. And so why is calling on the name of the Lord, on the name of Jesus, the only way that we can be saved? Well, because Jesus has paid for our sins. You see, we either will face the wrath of God ourselves, the just wrath of God for the punishment of our sins, or it can be poured out upon Jesus, which is what happened on the cross. And so when Jesus died on that cross, he took all the punishment that that we owe for our sins upon himself, and the perfect life that he lived is credited to us. And that by putting our faith in him, by calling upon the name of him, we will no longer need to be judged for our sins because those sins were already judged on the cross. And that we will be saved. That's why we'll be delivered by calling upon the name of the Lord in this great and terrible day. So that message there is what we call the gospel. That we can be saved through the work of what Jesus has done. Now, I want to wrap up here. And I know I I said we were going to read through the whole book of Joel. Most of the themes I wanted to communicate, we've communicated today. uh, But we're still going to read chapter 3. Because I still think there's some interesting things for us to look into. I won't take very long in explaining it. Uh, And then I'm going to give you guys some final thoughts on on the book as a whole. So here we go, Joel chapter 3. At the time of those events, says the Lord, when I restore the prosperity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the armies of the world into the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will judge them for harming my people, my special possession, for scattering my people among the nations, and for dividing up my land. They threw dice to decide which of my people would be their slaves. They traded boys to obtain prostitutes and sold girls for enough wine to get drunk. What do you have against me, Tyre and Sidon, and you cities of Philistia? Are you trying to take revenge on me? If you are, then watch out. I will strike swiftly and pay you back for everything you have done. You have taken my silver and gold and all my precious treasuries and have carried them off to your pagan temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks so that they could take them far from their homeland. But I will bring them back from all the places to which you sold them, and I will pay you back for everything you have done. I will sell your sons and your daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the people of Arabia, a nation far away. I have spoken. I, the Lord, have spoken. Say to the nations far and wide, get ready for war. Call out the best warriors. Let all your fighting men advance for the attack. Hammer your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Train even your weaklings to be warriors. Come quickly, all you nations everywhere. Gather together in the valley. And now, O Lord, call out your warriors. Let the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them all. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread the grapes, for the winepress is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will no longer shine. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, and the heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a strong fortress for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, live in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy forever, and foreign armies will never conquer her again. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. Water will fill stream beds of Judah, and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple, watering the arid valley of the Acacias. But Egypt will become a wasteland, and Edom will become a wilderness, because they attacked the people of Judah and killed innocent people in their land. But Judah will be filled with people forever, and Jerusalem will endure through all generations. I will pardon my people's crimes, which I have not yet pardoned, and I, the Lord, will make my home in Jerusalem with my people." Okay, so the last chapter in the book of Joel is this picture of God's judgment upon the earth. 
and it's the establishment of a prosperous Jerusalem. Okay, so this is the day the Lord says, hey, there's, there's a day coming when all these people that, that have gathered against Judah, they're going to be punished for their sin. And, and really, I, I believe that I would expand that to say, like, man, when I look at this imagery, it harkens to what I see in the book of Revelation, which is just, man, there's a day of judgment coming where all of us are going to be called to account for the, the way that we've lived our lives, and we're going to be called to account for our sin. But once again, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Um, and we also see this institution of a prosperous Jerusalem, okay? Now, I don't think that this has been fulfilled quite yet, um, just because the, the kind of prosperity that he's talking about here, I don't know that you could really make a solid argument that Jerusalem has ever seen that, uh, certainly not since the days of Solomon, and Joel almost certainly prophesied after the days of Solomon. So I think this is one of those prophecies that's still yet to be fulfilled. But if you look at what's being described here, it actually looks quite a bit like the New Jerusalem that's described to us in Revelation. Okay? And in that place, uh, God dwells. Right? It says there's not even going to be a sun anymore. God himself is going to be the light of that city. And what's the last verse of the book of Joel? Uh, I, the Lord, will make my home in Jerusalem with my people. So I think that what this is talking about is actually talking about the new Jerusalem that's eventually going to be instituted after the day of judgment. It's what most people would think of when they think of heaven. Now, um, with this, we, the, the picture that we get of New Jerusalem here is, it, it kind of brings in the question, that whole thing I was talking about before, like, okay, how, how do Christians and Jews work together with being wrapped into this idea of being the people in God, of God and inheriting the promises of God and living in this New Jerusalem? Um, I would say the book of Revelation makes it clear that Christians are going to be the ones that are inhabiting that, that, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And now, of course, amongst that, there are also going to be many Jewish people that have chosen to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Um, now, the book of Joel ends uh, with speaking how God will protect his people and prosper them forever, but how he's going to punish his, their enemies and lay waste for their sins. And so it's another book that gives us the idea of, hey, this is what's going to happen in the end. Are you ready for it? And so I'm going to conclude uh, with asking you guys three questions uh, that I would draw out as some of the biggest points from the book of Joel. First, have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Um, remember the call that we saw in chapter 2, even now, return to me with all your heart. Remember that the Lord is compassionate, he's gracious, that he wants to forgive. If you haven't called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, I urge you to do that. And the name of the Lord is Jesus, like we talked about. Number two, do you need to tear your heart instead of your clothes? Do you need to rend your garments, rend your heart instead of your garments, as you talked about? Is there an area of sin in your life that you realize, like, man, I really need to, to truly repent over this? Maybe you've never repented over it. Maybe you've kind of been acting repentant over it, but you really haven't. You've been doing the tearing of the clothes, but not the tearing of the heart. I encourage you to look in this. Is there something in your life where this is a situation? Um, and you know what? Maybe God is even doing something in your life to point that out. The way that I believe God was using this plague of locusts to point out the sin of Israel, to, to the, or the sin of Judah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe God's using some sort of discipline in your life right now to show you that. Um, maybe he's using his word. Maybe this, this sermon or other times you've been reading the Bible is pointing something out to you where this is an area, man, I need to repent in. Um, maybe he's doing it through others, Christians and other Christians in your life that are pointing this out to you. Um, and calling you back to the word of God, the way that Joel was doing. Or maybe it's through his spirit which he's poured out upon us. Remember, in these days, God has poured his spirit out upon us, and the spirit convicts us of our sin and leads us in truth and in righteousness as well. And then finally, um, who do you know 
that's not ready for the day of the Lord. If you haven't called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, then you're not ready for the day of the Lord. If you have, I, I would think everyone who's in this room probably knows a decent number of people that are not ready for this great and terrible day of judgment that is coming, okay? And remember, God is merciful. He wants sinners to repent. He calls them to himself, and he warns us, okay? He, he's, not the, he's not the dad that goes and just spanks you immediately without telling you what's coming or what you did or anything like that. He's telling you, hey, I'm giving you time. I'm giving you time. I'm giving you time. Second Peter chapter 3 actually talks about how God is holding off his judgment of the earth so that people would have more time to repent, okay? So how are we cooperating with him in that? You know, as the, as the Lord holds off the judgment of the earth, which actually, in some ways, is something we should look forward to, right? Because that's going to be the day that all the bad stuff is done away with. Everything that we hate is going to be done away with at that time. So it's actually going to be a really good day in some ways. Um, but it's also going to be a terrible day for those that are not ready. And so that's why God is holding it off. When people say, why doesn't God correct all these problems in the world? Why does he let people live in poverty? Why does he let young girls get sold off into sex slavery? And why does he let these wars rage all over? It's like, God, God is allowing those things to continue actually in his mercy because one day he is going to end them, okay? But he's going to end them on the day of the Lord when judgment comes. And so he wants people to have more time to repent before that happens. So who do you know that needs to hear this message? Who do you know that, that you can go and share that with and get them ready for saying, hey, the Lord's coming back, but there's a way that you can be saved and that you can live in that city, that new Jerusalem, where the Lord will dwell with us. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you so much for who you are. Uh, we thank you for your mercy. Um, we thank you for just the way that you're honest with us. Um, God, I thank you that you warn us. We thank you that you correct us. God, we thank you that you empower us. And God, we just, we want to praise you. Like, we want to be faithful people that, that live righteous lives, that love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that love each other, that confess and repent of our sin when, when we uh, commit it, God. And, and God, we want to be people that um, just spread the good news of you everywhere we go. We thank you so much for who you are, and we pray that you would continue to guide us and teach us as we go about our week. Uh, we lift this prayer up in your son's awesome name. Amen. Mm-hmm.